the Commentary on the Gospel of Matthew podcast is a verse-by-verse study with Torah Resource President and Instructor Tim Haig. These audio sessions were recorded over a three-year period during Shabbat services at Beit Hillel, located in Tacoma, Washington. All right, I think we, uh, we ended off on page 137, not, and Yeshua is in the process of choosing his disciples. Now, we'll discover when we get to chapter 5, next time we meet, that um, there are some difficulties that we have between the Gospels. I don't know how many of you have ever worked on these, what are called the synoptic problems, but we're coming up to one of the, one of the synoptic problems, and that is the so-called Sermon on the Mount. And we'll, we'll talk about that uh, again our, in our next class period. But Luke has Yeshua choosing all of his disciples at one time, and Matthew has, uh, only gives us indication of the four that he specifically calls and, and chooses. And these four are, are Peter and his brother Andrew, and then James and his brother John. Uh, two sets of brothers that he uh, chooses or calls to be his disciples. And um, he said uh, to Peter and to Andrew on uh, in verse 19 of chapter 4, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And as we noted last week, our view of fishing is quite a bit different than was theirs. And I think, unfortunately, some people have taken uh, fishers of men very literally and they've thought of how they can bait the hook and, uh, and snag uh, people for the Lord. And that's not, of course, the picture. It was um, fishing by a net, and the net is what? The gospel. the gospel, exactly. Now, it doesn't take one too long to figure out that if you have a bunch of holes in your net, it doesn't work. And so, um, you know, when when Paul was in prison, he, he writes in, uh, I believe it's Colossians, uh, that there were those who were uh, preaching the gospel out of spite. Now, what did he mean by that? Well, they were kind of happy that this Paul, this Johnny-come-lately guy, that had been such a, a thorn in the flesh for the believers in Yeshua, now all of a sudden he comes to faith in the Messiah, and, and all of a sudden he rises to the top. You know, how, is that, how does that make you feel if you've been slogging it out as a Jewish believer all these years and, and uh, remaining firm in, in spite of the persecution that someone like Paul was dishing out. Now, all of a sudden, Paul makes a change and he becomes the spokesman, as it were. And so when he's finally put in prison, there were some that apparently were not that sad about it. So, okay, he, he needs to suffer a little bit himself. And what did Paul say? He said, whether they preach out of contempt or for me, or whatever, he said, that doesn't matter to me. What matters to me is if the gospel is preached. So really, the motivation in preaching the gospel is not the issue. The message is the issue. We have that just flip-flopped in our day. You know, somebody, you, you hear somebody saying, well, yeah, he's, yeah, he's kind of off the mark, but he's so loving and so sincere and so desirous for people to know the Lord. Yeah, his gospel's, a, you know, his message is a little bit tainted with this, that, and the other, but, you know, you know, he's given... Some of the truth and what 
you know, that wouldn't work. The net that's all torn up doesn't catch fish. And so if the net is the gospel, it has to be the pure gospel. And what is the pure gospel? Well, we could spend, you know, some good time about that. But, but the gospel is talking about what God has done and what we are not able to do and a willingness to accept what he has done. The gospel involves not simply a recognition of God and his Messiah, Yeshua, but it involves an acceptance of God and his Messiah, Yeshua, which means an end to oneself and a change of life. The idea that the gospel was ever presented as a fire escape or as, or as uh, fire insurance is just, when you read the gospels, when you read the book of Acts, you recognize that is not the case whatsoever. What happens time and time again in the biblical accounts, when someone comes to faith in the Messiah, there is a radical change in their lives. And we see this uh, uh, demonstrated again in the whole issue of discipleship. What happens when Yeshua comes and he doesn't invite, he commands, right? Uh, Peter and Andrew, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Well, they have no option but to follow him, which means what? They're giving up their nets, which is their occupation. They're leaving their, their uh, home, Capernaum. Uh, there was plenty of personal sacrifice. What always happens in affluent society, and it happens even more in a Christian affluent society, is that there is very little cost attached to being a follower of Yeshua. In America, it doesn't cost you anything. It really doesn't especially in politically correct America. Even though Christians, I grant, are, are spoken against, made fun of, and so forth and so on. Okay. But, you know, there's no way in the world you could have a multi-million dollar uh, industry of Jesus' clothing unless it must be okay by a, by a large group of people in this country. The Purr of Jabez made a, a whole lot of money for for the author. So, what does it mean? It means that uh, our faith costs us very little, and as a result, its value is not very high. It's just, you know, it's an economic reality. It's a very simple reality. Any object is exactly worth what you paid for it, at least when you pay for it, right? I mean, it may grow in value. But if you get something for free, a lot of times it has very little value to you. And so, is our salvation free? On the one sense, yes, in that we could never have purchased it. We could never have given what we owed, obviously. It's a gift of God's grace. But what does it cost you and me? Everything. Everything. He doesn't just want your attention here and there. Uh, He wants our lives. All that we do and all that we say and everything that we are and Whoever we are and whatever our hopes and dreams are belong to him. That's what it means when he says that he's Lord, that he's master. And we have fallen into this easy believism whereby we preach a a message that says, if you will do one, two, and three, your name will be written in the book of life. You're in. Uh, Congratulations. And there's nothing of discipleship. And yet, when you read in the Gospels, and see and act it out in the book of Acts. Evangelism is discipleship. There was no, there was no concept of just getting people saved. 
I mean, that, that didn't figure into the way the early apostles thought. It meant being disciples of the master and, and making other disciples. Uh, that's a whole different approach to the gospel. I remember reading years ago the revival lectures by Finney. Uh, Charles Finney went all over the country, uh, held all kinds of tent meetings, was the first one to introduce the anxious seat, uh, where he would have people, he would ask people to come forward and sit in a row that he called the anxious seat, and then afterwards would uh, take them separately and talk with them about salvation and so forth. Well, supposedly there were all these revivals under uh, Charles Finney, but by the time he was finished with his life and t- looking back, he said that, in his own words, he says that the converts that came through the preach, his preaching of the gospel were a big embarrassment to him. And the reason is, is because it was like so many other campaigns that have come in our modern day. You have this easy believism gospel preached, and it does not produce any fruit. A lot of people come forward, a lot of people sign cards and raise hands, but it doesn't make any difference. The society continues to, uh, to slide. And, uh, you know, I remember that when... Um, Boy, this is going to date me, but I think it was called Key 73 um, down south somewhere in Texas or I don't remember where it was. It was these huge, these huge gatherings where they were uh, seeking revival in America. And they were supposedly experiencing unbelievable revival in these places. I, I, I don't know what the outcome of it was, to be honest with you. So these we're looking at the very beginning of Yeshua's appointing disciples, but it comes to us as an illustration of where are we in this. If Yeshua, if we were there and Yeshua were to say to us, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men, what excuses would we give? What would we say? Oh, wait, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm getting a promotion. Could, could we wait a, a month or two or a year or two? You know, I'm about to be married that sounds so, so radical, but it is radical. True faith is radical. It is an abandonment of oneself to God in ways that uh, probably none of us are fully ready for until he calls, until he asks. Now, I think it's just as radical to day by day say yes to God as it is to you know, uproot yourself and leave and go somewhere else. However, the Lord would indicate that I don't know. Well, I do know, I think, but uh, probably not through a dream or... A vision would uh, have to be confirmed other ways. But just to say yes to God is, is a, on a regular basis in terms of what we do and what we think and how we act. Um, that's, that is the, the heart and soul of the gospel. All right. And that's why uh, Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Because it, that is the gospel, is the power of God that results in salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. So it is the work of the Spirit in connection with the proclamation of the gospel that brings about repentance towards God and faith in Yeshua the Messiah. One of the things that uh, we see in, in Matthew, uh, in all the gospels, and we see it reiterated in Paul, and pa- Paul actually says that it was by the foolishness of this thing preached. Because when you stop to think about it, you're, you're giving the gospel to people who can't hear it to people who are dead in trespasses and sins. So you're telling, it's like telling somebody to fly to repent of their sins. 
And yet God, in his mysterious ways, uses the proclamation of the gospel by his Spirit as the means of bringing those whom he has chosen unto himself. The giving of the gospel, then, as pictured in the metaphor of fishing, is not one of enticement, but of the sovereign power of God, whereby, through the gospel itself, those who are chosen are drawn to faith and rescued. We should also note that Yeshua says that he would make them fishers of men. He said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Their ability to net fish depended upon their learned expertise in that occupation. Nobody had to teach them about how to catch the fish that they were catching in the nets. The task which Yeshua would commission them for, however, required his expertise, his power. I will make you fishers of men. You don't know how to do that very well at this point. Their success in fishing for men was something that would come from the training he would give them as well as the power of the Spirit they would receive as the fruit of his labors. Now, I'm presuming, because I know the end of the story, so do you. Okay, I'm presuming that in all of this, he's talking about fishing for fish they hadn't fished before. Not, not their fellow Jewish brothers and sisters. That they could easily have done. Sit in the synagogue, express from Isaiah, from Jeremiah, from wherever that the, what the prophets were talking about was the Messiah, and the Messiah has come. Look, his name is Yeshua, here's what he's done. That was no problem. They knew how to do that. How do you go to pagans in the midst of their pagan culture and express to them about Yeshua? Where are you going to start? They didn't have to do that in their communities. You didn't have to start by saying, We'd like to exp- I'd like to tell you about the God who created the heavens and the earth. Everybody in their society already knew about this God. From the time they could read, they knew about this God. They grew up in the synagogue hearing about the one who created the heavens and the earth. They knew him in that regard. So you didn't have to start there when you were talking to your Jewish brothers and sisters about Yeshua. They were already discussing who the Messiah was. They were already anticipating who he would be. They were primed and ready for the message of the gospel. But how do you go to philosophers on the Oropagus in Athens and talk to them about the unknown God? (laughs) Where do you start? That, of course, has been the question uh, for missions all along and still is. Where do you begin with this whole introduction? Why would you even need a Messiah? What is sin? Who has the right to say that you have to repent? What God is this? I mean, you really have to start with Genesis 1, which is why, again, the net is full of holes. Because how many countries are there in the world where meaningful, diligent, wonderful Bible translators have done the Gospel of John and left it and gone away? And that culture, that whole people group has the Gospel of John and maybe a couple of other books out of the New Testament, and that's what they have as the Bible. How could you understand the Gospel of John without knowing about Genesis? So, uh, God is greater even than our blunders. So, <laughs> you know, what he can do, I'm sure, with the Gospel of John is, is up to him. But it would seem to me, and I'm not putting down the Gospel of John. I think the Gospel of John is, uh, is inspired and wonderful. But the Gospel of John was written by somebody who presumed you had already r- read uh, Genesis through Second Chronicles. You see, you see how important the giving of the Spirit was at Shavuot. He said, don't go 
until you receive the power from on high. Why? You don't know how to do this. You're going to go into uncharted waters. Are you going to look in the prophets and they're going to tell you how to evangelize the pagans? The prophets weren't writing to the pagans. They were writing to Israel. They were writing to Judah. They were writing to people who already had the Torah. So now you're out in this uncharted water. Who are you going to, who are you going to call upon to give you advice? What do we do next? And that's where the Spirit of God was active in leading them. Even through visions and through revelations and through other kinds of things, he would, he, he would give them the power to bring about healing and to bring about uh, the, the expulsion of demonic forces. And in that, the people would say, oh, these foreigners who have come to us have something we need to listen to. That was the Spirit of God. Now, what was their response? Verse 20, immediately they left their nets and followed him. I note in the side margin that here we have a different word for nets. And this is where I was wondering if uh, Buzz would share what he's... I know he studied this somewhat because he's done a lot of work. Uh, Buzz Johnson is our resident uh, fishing expert. Uh, not only because he fishes a lot, but also because he has degrees in it. So he's studied these things historically. And this is a different net uh, word for net. Here the word is dictuon. And it describes a net used for deep water fishing, as distinct from amphiblestron, which is the circular net used for casting. It is possible that when Yeshua first approached them, they were fishing from the shore with the casting net, and that later they went out into the boats to fish the deep water with a different style of net. If this is the case, then Luke's story is describing events after the fishermen had fished in the deep water during the night. Moreover, when Yeshua encounters James and John and their father uh, Zebedee, they were mending the nets, something that does not figure into the story as Matthew and Mark portray it. Do we have two different fishing events here that, that maybe look the same but really aren't? However, there are so many similarities... When you look at the language, there's enough similarities that you have to believe that Luke, either Luke knew Matthew or Matthew knew Luke in terms of the writing. There's too many uh, verbal similarities. At any rate, they left their nets and followed him. Once again, Matthew stresses the urgency of the matter by noting the immediacy of the men's actions. The kingdom was at hand. There was no time to waste. But Luke appears to offer a fuller description of the events, if in fact he is talking about the same events. According to his account, the call of Peter and Andrew became disciples of the master occurred after they had finished all night and caught nothing. So they had returned to the shore and were washing their nets. It was then that Yeshua used one of the boats as a floating podium and addressed the crowd that had gathered on the shore. Remember the story? This is given to us in Luke. After teaching the people, he instructed Peter and the rest to go out again and cast their nets into the water, even though Peter protested that doing so would be an exercise in futility because he says, look, we've been fishing all night and we have caught nothing. Now you're asking us to go out again? But he and the rest complied. Actually, the verb in the Greek, when you read it, is singular. So Peter uh, uh, complied, meaning what? Peter apparently was the captain of the boat. In other words, he was in charge. He and the rest complied and ended up catch, catching so many fish that it required the second boat to come to their aid. Having seen the miraculous power of Yeshua, Peter mimics the words of Isaiah in 6.5 and declares, Go away from me, Master, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. I, I think that's a very interesting use of kurios, by the way. He says, Go away from me, kurios, for I am a sinful man, O kurios. 
you think the second kurios, he's referring to, kurios, by the way, is Greek for Lord. Okay, so I was using the Greek word for Lord there. The first time he's referring to him as master, as his master. Do you think the second time he's referring to him as divine? I think that might be the case. Because why does he say, go away from me? Well, he's just like, he's like Isaiah. Isaiah in chapter 6 of Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up. And what does he do? He goes, woe is me, I am a dead man. I am in the presence of the divine one. And that's not going to work because he's going to know who I am and, and I'm, I'm ready to be judged. So Yeshua uh, also evokes that kind of fear from Peter. When Peter sees what Yeshua has done, he's thinking, how in the world? This is the man that I walked with, that I know that's a friend of mine. He's a common man. And he can bring the fish whenever he wants. It sounds like something the Creator would do. What did Yeshua say? Similar words as we find throughout the Tanakh, do not fear. And then he adds, from now on, you'll be catching men. The miracle of the large catch of fish, at least from Luke's perspective, was a lesson in terms of the disciples' new occupation for fishing for men. In the same way that they had been unsuccessful in their nighttime endeavors at fishing, but had immediate success by the sovereign work of the Master, so their ability to catch men would be dependent upon the sovereign work of salvation, which only God himself could effect. In other words, I think he was giving them a very interesting, dramatic illustration. You know how you fished all night and didn't catch anything? Yeah. Well, that's the same success you're going to have with people, unless I do the work. Now, go back out and catch some fish, and they catch more than they've ever caught. So see? This whole idea of fishing is going to be based upon what I do. You're going to be my workers, but it's going to be me doing the work. You're going to be my servants. So the sense of immediacy noted in Matthew and Mark should be understood in a general way. They did not hesitate in making the decision to leave their current occupation and follow the master as he commanded them to. The emphasis is upon an undivided heart to obey, even in view of personal sacrifice. So when it says they immediately left the nets, if we collate Luke and Matthew together, there's some time that's elapsing here. There's some things that are happening. They fished all night. They come back. It's not like they were sitting, uh, standing there or sitting there washing their nets, and Yeshua comes up and says, follow me and I'll make your fishers of men, and they just immediately get up and go. It's, it's, if we take all of the Gospels together... It seems that the story is wider than that. But what, it, what does he mean then? Immediately they left their nets. Meaning, without the hesitation of heart and soul with regard to the decision that was being made. The pattern of discipleship being given to us here by Matthew involves two aspects. They left their nets and they followed him. This emphasizes two general aspects which are true of all who would follow Yeshua, namely that it involves personal sacrifice, giving up one's own life agenda, and conformity to the Master, following in his footsteps. Both of these suggest that a radical commitment of faith and obedience is the norm for disciples of Yeshua. That's not the extraordinary. It's the norm. You know, it's not like, I'm, now I'm mixing metaphors, but it's not as though he's inviting you to join his, uh, he, you know, his forces. He drafted you. You don't have a choice. You got your notice. I'm just amazed or convinced again that we have not emphasized, maybe I should say I have not emphasized enough in my teaching and even in my own uh, you know, thinking of the utter necessity 
of being a disciple of Yeshua. And that 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 does not mean that we can have religion as one of the compartments of our life. We are so good at compartmentalizing. You know, we have a little religion here. We have our work over here. We have our family over here. We have all of these things. No, a disciple has has basically forfeited his life and received from the master what he's to do. Now, what does the master tell us to do? To be good husbands, to be good wives, to be good fathers, good mothers, to be obedient children, to walk in the ways of righteousness. Those are all the things of discipleship. I don't want you to hear me saying what I heard so many people say when I uh, was growing up. If you don't go to the mission field, you're choosing second best for your life. That's just not true, necessarily. You know, if God is... um, By the way, how would God tell somebody to go in our day and age? How would God tell somebody to go, to to leave family, to leave community, and go to another place to uh, disciple people? How How would that happen? How would it happen out of Behalel? What would be the procedure? If somebody had a dream and said, you know, I think the Lord told me to head off to uh, Nigeria or someplace and, and start uh, making disciples, how would we know if, if the Lord was wanting him or her to do that? We do have the scriptures, don't we? What do the scriptures say? Well, first of all, you wouldn't go by yourself. You have absolutely no example anywhere in the scriptures of anyone going by themselves. They're always in twos, minimum. And secondly, everybody that we see being sent out has, has been active in the community of which they were part for a, long, for a good amount of time so that they could be known and seen and understood. I mean, how long was Paul at Antioch before he and Barnabas went on their first journey? Maybe 13 years. And he was, you know, advanced in his training. And thirdly, how would you know that uh, your impressions, whatever they may have been, or your desires or your burden are really from the Lord. It would have to be confirmed by the witness of others within the community that, yes, they too believe that this is what God wanted. It's in the mouth of, of numbers of witnesses that a thing is established. And so, once again, we have fouled it up with mission boards and with deputation. And I don't know if you are familiar with the word deputation. It's... Uh, what would be another way of saying it? It's, it's going about the countryside drumming up money so that you can pay for your way to go. The, the, the point was being made that uh, the, the net that was cast near the shore, uh, the number of fish lost when it was pulled in, is uh, nothing like what was lost by the net that was out in the deep water. Um, what what do you do when you disciple someone? When you go to a, a location that has no one, zero uh, people that that know of God and have accepted His Son Messiah, and you start you you have one person that comes to faith, God gives you one, Baruch Hashem. You disciple that person. Now what do you do? Well, you can't leave that person there. You've got to you've got to stay there long enough until there can be a community that can be founded and and uh, some leadership raised up and then you leave and go somewhere else. So it's not a it's not an overnight kind of a thing. It's on the other hand, if you are in a place where there is a founded community, when you uh, bring somebody uh, help somebody come to the 
realization that Yeshua truly is the Messiah, and, and that person receives the Messiah, then there's a community where they can eventually be uh, brought in and, uh, and discipled and grow. So there's, there's value in that. All right. So I, as I was saying, this, uh, the, the modern missions has missed this, essentially. And uh, there are some missions that are doing it, uh, that are doing it in a biblical way, but many, many are not. And I think part of the lack of success in modern missions is not only because the gospel has been watered down, but because the methods of uh, accountability and so forth and support from, uh, local, from their local community has been relegated to, to institutions that don't have a biblical basis, like a mission board. And I'm not saying that mission boards haven't done some good work. They have. I think the primary reason that the scriptures that Yeshua uses the fishing as a metaphor for the gospel is the idea of the net. That the gospel itself is the net that gathers in those whom God desires. This teaching is one of the 218 audio sessions found in the five-volume teaching series titled A Commentary on the Gospel of Matthew by Tim Haig from Tor Resource. This product is the fruit of over three years of studying and teaching through the Gospel of Matthew, verse by verse, and from a Messianic perspective. The five-volume set is available in softcover book or digitally as PDF files. To order your copy today, visit TorResource.com. Okay, the question is, um, uh, what's the difference between a mission board and the church in Jerusalem sending people out? Well, actually, I don't know. Who did the church in Jerusalem send out? No, the church in Antioch sent out Paul and Barnabas. Uh, Acts 13. Yeah. Well, that, that, that was uh, in, in, in the, the church in Antioch was uh, a local community. It was not a... Uh, the, the difference is, is that you have a community, number one, that knows those who are being sent out that they have ministered within the, the, that group, and that group knows them, okay? Uh, secondly, the, the leaders of the group, the overseers and elders, continue to be the ones who make the decisions relative to those that are sent out. So where does Paul constantly come back to? He comes back to Antioch to check in, to give report, or he goes to Jerusalem to check in and give report. Well, when you have when you have a mission missionary that's supported by 250 churches, and so he might say, "Well, I come back and I, I give accountability to my home church." Baloney. I know that's not the case. You know, they get moved from one place to another on the field. The uh, the uh, field what do they call it the the yeah the field secretary makes those decisions. The the home church doesn't make that decision whatsoever. So, basically, he comes back, and then in order to maintain his next four years after taking a year's furlough, he goes around to his 250 churches and hopes and prays that they'll continue to support him for 25 bucks a month. I mean, that's, that's the way it works, and that's the way the mission board's intended to work. That's how they teach you. I mean, I went through missions class in, at Cedarville University, and uh, that's what they, they were getting you ready for that. They were getting you ready for doing that whole thing. And the field council was the one that really made the decisions, and the mission board made a huge decision. Um, mission boards will shut down whole areas of countries. They're saying, this is not being profitable. It's not working. We're going to move you from this part of the country to the other part of the country. Nobody at the home church has anything to say about that.
So um, the the whole idea of how and when do you decide that you're finished? What are missions supposed to do? You're not supposed to go and become an overseer of a church in another country. Paul didn't do that. Barnabas didn't do that. Now, granted, he asked Timothy to come and stay at Ephesus, but we don't know how long. But what Paul did was he went, it says in Acts 14, he went to every, as he went from one congregation to another, he appointed elders and left. As soon as there were people ready and able, even if they weren't that ready and able, as long as they were ready and able, he put them in charge and left. Then he would come back a while later and say, okay, now what are we doing? You know, how are we doing here? Oh, I do too. Oh, I do too. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, the comments being made that, uh, and I agree, I have very high respect for, for uh, most missionaries that I've met. I think they're just victims of a system that is a bad system. And it's, I think the system, if, if it were to conform to Scripture, would be a good system. But what happens is, is that when, as the church, as the local churches lose their willingness to do things according to Scripture, then who's going to pick up the ball? Because if you don't have strong local congregations, if missions is all uh, uh, related to, to local congregations and you don't have strong local, local congregations, then what do you do? And that's where the mission boards came in. When, when uh, William Carey and Adoniram Judson and the rest of them said they wanted to go to, the, to foreign uh, countries and share the gospel, what did the churches tell them? Tell them, hey, if God wants to save the heathen, he'll save them without your help. So in other words, they were not getting any support from, from the local communities of which they were a part. Well, uh, what we're studying here in, in, in Matthew and in the related Gospels is, is the textbook on what we're supposed to do. This is how Yeshua did it. The other thing is that, is, that uh, it amazes me. And, you know, I actually, there was at one point in time a fleeting moment when I thought to myself the possibility might exist that Paulette and I would end up in Liberia. Because the two times that I went there, they begged me to stay. You know, we need a teacher. We need teachers to help here. You know, and there were there was obvious need. My heart was drawn to it, so forth and so on. But I knew immediately when I even thought of that that there's no way in the world I would go and be a teacher in a foreign country and be supported from America. And you don't find that at all in 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 the uh, Gospels. These men went and did it without, you know, you know, they had to work. Paul sold tents, and probably those who worked with him also helped him. And um, so what you have is you have uh, American missionaries that go to a foreign country and they live at the highest level in that country that you can imagine. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, why? Well, because the mission board requires it. You know, they have to have X amount of thousand dollars per month before they can go. They have their retirement. They have their Social Security they have to pay and so forth and so on. Okay, well, and good. I have a good friend who lives in Turkey. She was a school teacher, but she wasn't there to teach school. She was there to tell people about Yeshua. Well, she's been there for 17 years. Okay, for, so for nine years she hasn't been teaching school. What has she been doing? The same thing she was doing the eight years that she was teaching school. It's just she got too busy doing the real stuff and didn't have, you know, didn't really have time to, to do the school stuff. And, um, you know, she's probably more a, a, a picture of what God really is is saying in terms of how you do go, you know. She's living on her retirement. She's living on whatever. She's doing whatever she can do. And the people love her. She's one of them. <laughs> she's down at their level. She, she 
She eats with them. She lives with them. She's part of them. She knows them, and she's and she speaks without an accent. Right? They you wouldn't even know. And you know, you say, well, you can't do that if you had a family. Yeah, exactly. Which is why Paul says, for some of you, it's better to remain single for the kingdom of God. And that's what she's done. You know, she has a she has a big reward in the world to come. I'm I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm not putting down the missionaries who have done it the other way. I know that they have sacrificed and continue to sacrifice. We have family that were in Africa for 30 years or whatever. Um, so we know the sacrifices that they've made, and they're to be highly commended for those things. But what I'm saying is the system has gone off the mark, and it would be wonderful if it would get back on the mark. I know I've kind of rabbit trailed on this, but I, when, I was in, when we were in seminary, um, every year we'd have missions conference, and I finally got up the courage to, to ask the main speaker who was the president of a big mission board. How, what the biblical basis was for a, missions, for a mission board. How the mission board had the authority that they were wielding over missionaries. And, and he was upset that I asked the question. But I think it's an important question to ask. All right. Going on from there, uh, verse 21. He saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Now, uh, Matthew makes it seem as though Yeshua continued to walk further along the beach after he had called Peter and, and Andrew. However, if Luke is describing a separate event which occurred in connection with Yeshua's initial approach to Peter and Andrew, then going on from there might describe a different setting than that of Matthew and Mark. I, I don't know. I don't know how to put Mark, uh, Luke 6 and, and Matthew 4 together. That's uh, what I'm struggling with. Regardless, two more brothers, Yaakov and Yochanan and their father Zebedee, are mending nets as Yeshua approaches them. At what exact time this is, I don't know. It could be slightly after, slightly before, I don't know. The English translation of Yaakov by James is an early phenomena and not something peculiar to the King James Version, as some have asserted. There was this thing floating around the Internet that, that because the uh, King James Version was for King James, that they, they, on purpose, just wanted to put his name in there. So they, instead of saying Jacob, because the Greek is Yaakov, Instead of saying Jacob, they changed it to James. That's nonsense. It's found in the Wycliffe translation produced in 1380, which predates the King James Version by 230 years. English James is an alteration of the Latin Jacobus, which became Jacobus, and then Jaumus, and finally came into English as James, because the, the I and the J, because, you know, in, in uh, many languages, a J is a Y sound. So... Similar linguistic transformations derive John from Latin Johannas. These transformations are linguistically and not theologically driven. So when you read that on the Internet, it's an urban myth, believe me. Zebedee is from the Aramaic Zavdai or Hebrew Zevadyah, which are shortened forms of Zevadyahu, which means gift of Yah or gift of God. This James is mentioned again by name in Matthew and two other times, but elsewhere referred to in the phrase, the sons of Zebedee. James, the son of Zebedee, is never mentioned by name in the Gospel of John, though in John 21, 2, the sons of Zebedee are listed among the disciples. Literally, the word sons is not there. It simply says those of Zebedee. James, the son of Zebedee, was executed by Herod in about 43 of the Common Era, according to Acts 12. John is regularly known as the brother of James, which would indicate that he was the younger of the two. 
Any of you younger brothers where you always were said, oh, yeah, you're such and such brother? Yeah, my younger, my brother was that way. When he came up through high school, they always would say, oh, okay, you're, you're, you're Tim's brother. Well, if, if you'll notice in Matthew and in the other Gospels, it's always, it's always James and John, his brother, <laughs> the brother of James. So he must have been the younger one. Yeah. But uh, the comment was made that John doesn't uh, name himself in the Gospel, which is true. But uh, he named pl- plenty of others. But he never names this particular John. Maybe he, was, uh, maybe he thought it would get mixed up with himself. He was also one of the Jerusalem pillars mentioned by Paul in Galatians 2.9. So after his brother James was executed, he rose to a prominent position of leadership within um, the people of the way. The fact that they were fishing together with their father means that they were likely not very old when Yeshua called them to follow him. Matthew also introduces their mother in chapter 20, verse 20. So we have a whole family here. In the, well, at least part of a family. We don't know how many other kids, but... Uh, we have a fishing family here in, in the book of Matthew. The language of our verse makes it clear that fishing was the family occupation, and this reemphasizes the fact that in leaving to follow Yeshua, they were leaving both family and livelihood. The short phrase, and he called them, harkens back to verse 19, which basically expanded that, where he says, and he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. What did Yeshua, how did Yeshua call them? Probably the same way, you know, we would uh, presume. But it just says here, he called them. He doesn't need to repeat the words that uh, are given previously. Yeshua was calling them to follow him and become fishers of men. The use of the word call, kaleo, finds its background in the Tanakh. In the wisdom literature, for instance, wisdom calls out to those who would follow her. It says, and wisdom calls out in the street, and wisdom calls. So there's this beckoning to to, uh, those who are naive or foolish. But particularly in Isaiah... The idea of a divine call approaches the sense of choosing. Note the following examples. Isaiah 43.1 But now, thus says the Lord your Creator, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. You could just as well say, I have chosen you. You are mine. Uh, 43.7 Everyone who is called by my name and whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed, even whom I have made. 48.12, listen to me, O Jacob, even Israel, whom I called. I am he, I am the first, I am also the last. It is this sense of a divine call that that is effectual, that is, which in the call itself secures a positive response, that the term gained its theological meaning in the epistles. Thus, those who are drawn to salvation by divine initiative are referred to as the called ones. Those who are called. In other words, Paul can say to speak about those who are called as synonymous with those who are saved. In this sense, then, the calling is always effectual. This particular call means you always respond. It is most likely that the word in our current text has already taken on this meaning. Yeshua's call to James and John is more than an invitation. By his calling them, he has also shown them to be his disciples. Moreover, in the epistles, God is the one doing the calling, and thus the results are secure. In our text, it is Yeshua, and the parallel in terms of biblical theology cannot be missed. Yeshua likewise exercises a divine prerogative in calling his disciples. When he calls them, they respond. Have you ever wished that you could do that with your kids? You know, in the act of calling, it changes their desire to obey you. See, God can do that. When God 
advances himself towards someone, he can change their heart so that uh, they will respond in a positive way. And that's what is meant by a call that has its effect within it. I, you know, the old, uh, when, you, when you're growing up as a young boy or young girl, you're wondering if there will be any ever somebody who will like you the way you like them, right? I mean, you know, this, this fear that there's never going to be anybody that will love you. You know, and it's a valid fear because you know yourself too well, you know. Um, and how do you affect that in someone else? You can't, but God does. When God calls us, he changes our hearts so we love him. Now, he, he may do it through some extraordinary means, like putting us uh, in positions that are uh, the lowest we've ever been <laughs> until we're finally saying, okay, I need help. But nonetheless, his call is effectual. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. The words are parallel to verse 20, but in this case, James and John also leave their father. Mark adds that there were servants in the boat as well. The divine call produces instant obedience. The notice that they followed him is not mere narrative. It has deeper theological significance. James and John left occupation and family in order to become disciples of the master. Once again, the cost of discipleship is made clear and illustrates the words of the master in Luke 14:26. If anyone comes to me, does not hate his father, his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Though the words should be allowed to retain their sharp prophetic edge, every time I've heard this preached, um, the preacher wants to make it very clear that you're, you're not supposed to hate your mom and dad. Well, exactly. You're right. You're not supposed to hate your mother and your father or your brother and your sister or even yourself. So why does he say it that way? Because that's what the word means. Well, he's trying to get your attention. He's doing what prophets do. You know, they do some, sometimes some out of the ordinary things to get your attention. So we should retain that. The point of our master is not that honoring father and mother has been suspended but that becoming a disciple of Yeshua will require putting him as the highest priority in life. Peter, Andrew, James, and John understood the radical nature of Yeshua's call, and their actions demonstrate and form the paradigm for those who would also be called as Yeshua's disciples. You know, we can, we can say whatever we want to say about uh, Bonhoeffer. Uh, have you read his little book, the, is it The High Cost of Discipleship or just The Cost of Discipleship? I think it's The Cost of Discipleship. I don't remember. but Well, you know, I don't particularly appreciate some of his theology. I don't particularly appreciate some of his uh, uh, liberal theology, very liberal theology. But I will have to say this, that he lived out what he, in this regard what he taught. He, he died in, in a Nazi prison because he felt that being a disciple of Yeshua, he could not abandon the Jews. I mean, he, he put it on the line. So um, I, I think it's, uh, I always say to myself, I'd rather not, um, uh, judge somebody until I've walked in their shoes and I have not walked in those shoes yet uh, you know I, I God forbid that I would have to but I trust that if if we came to the point where we were required to put our life on the line that and he would give us grace to do that that we would be able to alright just a couple more minutes Yeshua was going throughout all Galilee teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people this is this verse just struck me as I was studying it uh, today. It's just wow. You know, I wish there was a faith healer that did this. Every every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. This verse is the beginning of a new section. 
that offers a conclusion to chapters 3 and 4 and introduces the Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5 through 7. Thus, the chapter break in our English Bibles between chapter 4 and 5 is not helpful. It would be better if the break were after uh, 22, verse 22. This bridging section is necessary to explain why a crowd had gathered to hear Yeshua's teaching in the first place. Verse 23 describes his ministry in the, in the Galil. Verse 24 notes the widespread news of his activities, which brought even more people, so that, in verse 25, crowds were following him. While the public ministry of Yeshua began in Nazareth and Capernaum, Matthew now alerts us to the fact that it has expanded to encompass the entire Galil. Once again, Matthew showing us the manner in which Yeshua's own ministry foreshadows the ultimate goal of proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom to all the nations. I wonder, I, I haven't read anybody but, uh, that has done this. I'm sure somebody has, because I, I know I wouldn't get the thought first. You know how Yeshua eventually tells the disciples, start in Jerusalem, then go to Judea, then Samaria, and then the other parts of the world. You almost get the feeling that Yeshua starts in Nazareth. He expands further to Capernaum. Now he's in the whole Galil, and pretty soon he'll be in Judea. You know, and so his ministry is that is that expanding kind of ministry um, where he goes to the Jew first and then to the Greek, and that appears appears to be the paradigm that the apostles themselves followed. So, uh, having noted that the region was Galilee of the nations, Matthew now shows the fact that Yeshua's activity encompasses all of Galilee, and it is a portent of the final commission to make disciples of all the nations in 28:19. In the same way. His healing of every disease and sickness answers to the shadow of death language in the quote from Isaiah 9, 1 through 2, which we had a few verses earlier. The light has shone in the darkness those who sit in the shadow of death. He was teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And, you know, people have uh, tried to distinguish between teaching and proclaiming. No, I, I don't think so. The synagogue was a place of teaching and study, and there is no doubt that as Yeshua taught, he emphasized the manner in which the scriptures, and we should say particularly the Torah, which was the central synagogue text for study, how he called the people to a faithful submission to the rule of God as king over Israel. Thus, the teaching and proclamation of the kingdom were for Yeshua necessarily complementary, as the subsequent Sermon on the Mount shows. In other words, teaching and proclaiming are two sides of the same coin. You open up the Bible, you say, this is what it says, now what are we going to do about it? And, and, and so one is teaching and one is proclaiming, but you can't have teaching without proclaiming or else it's not teaching. You can't have proclaiming without teaching or, it is, or it's fruitless. I, don't, I, I think uh, too much is made of uh, rhetoric these days. Moreover, the gospel of the kingdom which Yeshua proclaimed found its basis in the Tanakh. The gospel proclaimed by our master was the gospel spoken of by Moses and the prophets. Has anyone ever asked themselves the question how Yeshua was proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom at this point? How was he doing that in the synagogues? They didn't have the New Testament yet. Somehow, we get into this mode of reading such so anachronistically that we can't even think. He hasn't died yet. He hasn't raised from the dead yet. How could he preach the gospel? Only uh, The reason I'm emphasizing this is that the gospel that, that uh, Abraham believed is the same gospel that Paul preached. It's no different. It is one gospel that God has provided or will provide a way through his chosen Messiah. And Yeshua could proclaim that gospel just the same as we can. And he did, apparently. He did it on the basis of the Tanakh, of the Torah. Thus, Matthew summarizes the Galilean ministry of Yeshua with three participles. He was teaching, he was proclaiming, and he was healing. Uh, I've tried to do the first two. I haven't been successful at the third. In so doing, he may be giving a general paradigmatic outline for the overall scope of Yeshua's ministry in that teaching and proclamation precede healing. 
That is, the revelatory value of his healing miracles could only be understood if one had previously been instructed. Right? So in 1358, Yeshua did not do very many, many miracles there. Why? Because of they, their unbelief. Once again, miracles are not given to produce belief. You don't understand them unless you have belief. We should not make too much of the fact that Matthew refers to the synagogues as their synagogues, as though his own community viewed themselves as other than the synagogal community. And many Christian commentators say, see, Matthew says he was proclaiming, he was teaching in their synagogues, meaning it wasn't Matthew's synagogue. Matthew had already left the synagogue and his community had already started forming the Christian church. Even though there, the word there has no immediate antecedent, the natural way to read this is that Matthew was referring to the Galilean population and thus the Galilean synagogues. Even if Matthew might be making a distinction between the traditional synagogues and the synagogues of the way, he gives no substantiation for the claim that the followers of Yeshua had already abandoned the synagogue and began to forge a new entity called the church. By all biblical records, the early followers of Yeshua considered themselves as part of the larger synagogue community, and so did Rome, as we see by the persecutions that came upon them. In going to the synagogues, Yeshua's work differed from that of Yochanan, Hamatbil, for he remained in the desert, and people therefore were required to go out to him in order to hear his message. Yeshua, however, went himself to the people. This was likewise to set the pattern for his own disciples, whom he would send first to the lost sheep of Israel and then to the nations. And he was healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. Same exact words in 935, by the way. The healing work of our master was bound together with his coming as Israel's redeemer. Sin and sickness are often linked in the Tanakh. I have to be careful here. I don't want anybody to think I'm saying that if you're sick, it's because you've sinned. I'm not saying that. Neither is Isaiah. What I'm saying is, what Isaiah was saying is that sickness and sin go together. If there hadn't been sin in this world, there wouldn't be sickness. So sickness is the result of sin in this world. I'm not saying that when you're sick, you know, oh, everybody's looking at you to say, I wonder what you did. There are some groups who believe that. I remember uh, my my Hebrew teacher, uh, Dr. Ronald Berge, and his wife, Francine, went to uh, France to to be missionaries there. He actually teaches in a seminary in France. And they were in a, uh, they were not charismatic themselves, but they were amongst a very charismatic group. And she had a miscarriage. And it, it really... It was nip and tuck whether they were going to be able to stay, because the church wanted to know what sin was, what hidden sin was in their life. So there are some people who who, who look at things that way. That's not what I'm saying here whatsoever. But sin and sickness are linked in the scriptures. So that when Matthew gives us the angelic announcement, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Yeshua, for he will save his people from their sins. We are to understand that the Savior has come. In other words, Savior is more than just a forensic idea. You know, you understand what I mean by that? When, when he says he will save his people from their sin, it just doesn't mean that he'll make a check mark in a book somewhere. It means he'll actually save you from your sins. He'll actually start saving you away from your sins so that the sin does not rule your life. And that also includes, apparently, according to what we read in the Gospels, something to do with our physical life. Yeshua goes around healing people. His salvation is not only of the soul. His salvation is also of the body. He desires to do that. Now, some might say, well, why didn't he save my child when I asked and and my child died? Well, I can't answer that. But I know there have been times when, many times, when people have prayed and God has healed. It's within his power and right to do that. 
Matthew is emphatic in repeating the word every. Every disease and every kind of sickness. In contrast to many modern-day faith healers, Yeshua healed all kinds of diseases. There were no screeners keeping the truly sick away from his public demonstration of God's power. Likewise, Yeshua's healing marked a distinction from that of Yochanan Hamad Mil's ministry, for Yochanan healed no one. Moreover, the healing that Yeshua performed for those who were diseased and weakened with sickness was a clear demonstration of God's mercies. I like this quote from Allison Davies. Before being confronted by the rigorous demands of the higher righteousness, Israel hears the good news of the gospel and receives this Messiah's healing, all this as a free gift. The gospel of the kingdom therefore entailed the whole person, soul and body. The sin and the woes it had brought through the agency of the tempter in the garden were now to be defeated by the promised seed of the woman. The news about him spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all who were ill, those, those suffering with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. So the news about Yeshua spread, spread far and wide. The region of Syria is probably not the Roman province, but is basically the north-northwest of Palestine area, uh, perhaps extending from Damascus to Antioch and on to the east. Seems to be the way it's used in Galatians as well. Even though this region had a large Jewish population, we should probably understand Matthew's emphasis here to include and perhaps emphasize the Gentiles. Though Yeshua does not leave the land, his influence and message is felt far beyond Israel's borders. While Mark generally has Yeshua teaching and casting out demons, Matthew centers attention upon the healing ministry of our Master. And I wondered why. I think the answer is, is that Matthew wants to hook up with the quotes from Isaiah, which he uses throughout his gospel. And what does Isaiah say the Messiah is going to do? He's going to heal. He's going to, he's going to give the blind their sight. He's going to make the lame walk, so forth and so on. We don't find any text in the Tanakh which can clearly be said to be casting out of demons. So it would be hard to link the fulfillment of the Messiah in his, in his work of casting out demons with what Isaiah had said. Uh, the healing, uh, on the other hand, is very easy to link. Uh, Matthew gives a representative list of the kinds of diseases that Yeshua healed, and he does so, no doubt, to emphasize that no disease could withstand his healing power. The general description is literally all the severe ones having multiple diseases and suffering severe torments. That's kind of a literal from the Greek. This is then further defined by the following phrase list, listing demoniacs, epileptics, and paralytics. The word demoniacs is actually a participle, a verb, daimonizomai, is actually a participle and therefore literally demonized. The word itself does not necessarily suggest possession, and it never does anywhere in the scriptures. So we get all hung up about, well, how does, the spirit, how does an evil spirit possess a person? What do we mean by possess? The better idea is simply demonized, has some effect upon, has some control of. Can a demon do that to someone who's indwelt by the spirit? Yes. So the idea that someone who is born again, who has the spirit of God within him, could never be uh, possessed by uh, a demon, well, the, the problem with that is that the scriptures don't ever say anybody's possessed. They say that they're demonized. And can a believer be demonized? Yes. I mean, Paul himself said that he was afflicted by, uh, by Satan and, not, and you know, not allowed to go where he wanted to go the, the one time. So, yeah, he, 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 we do wage war uh, battle against him. What's the easiest way to, to have uh, demonic influence in your life? Dabble in their world. Take the things where they have control and bring those into your life. It's real easy in our day and age. Real easy. That's, that's what I think we learn from the, from the word itself. 
The word epileptic is literally those moonstruck, but is most likely describing what we what we do know as epilepsy from what we read in Matthew 17, the uh, seizure and so forth. Apparently, ancient man thought that the condition was caused by the moon, and even our English lunacy is connected to the Latin luna, which means moon. Demonic activity and epilepsy is sometimes connected in the Gospels, as well as in the rabbinic literature. Here's my take on it. This isn't a class on demonology, but here's my take on it. I think sometimes, not all the time, by any means, but sometimes demons are able to mimic real diseases. And I think they do it, I think they can do it a number of ways, for a number of reasons. And uh, don't, don't shoot me for this, okay? Don't throw anything at me yet. But let's just say if this were a possibility, how it might work out. Let's say that a demon had the ability to mimic a disease. And so you all of a sudden struck with this disease, and you're, you don't know what to do. And so you hear that there's faith healer is in town. And so you think, well, that's worth a try. But you're not talking about faith in God. You're just talking about magic. And so you go. And this crackpot faith healer does his mumbo-jumbo, and guess what? The demon stops mimicking the disease, and you get healed. Now what do you believe? You believe that the crackpot's for real. You just got trapped. So, I mean, he can... The, the, the deceiver is good at his business. And I've, I've actually seen what I think was demonic activity that mimicked um, diseases. Well, all I'm saying is that possession tends to think that, that someone, that an, an entity has taken up residence within you and therefore owns you. There's nothing in the scriptures that talk about possession. Enter in, yes. Effect, yes. But possession, no. The, 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 that is not how demons are spoken of in the scriptures. That's all I'm saying. It, it, is, it is a verbal form of the noun, demonion, and it just means to demonize. They just make a verb out of it. Matthew's point is that Yeshua held sway both over the demons as well as the sickness brought into the world through Satan, the leader of demonic forces. He healed them not by administering medicine to them, but through miraculous powers. So you could take the Greek to say, and he doctored them. Therapeuteo is the, is the verb. And it's the word that's used to be a doctor. But that's not what it means. He healed them. Uh, he did it through miraculous powers. The Redeemer was indeed in their midst. It says, large crowds followed him from Galilee, the, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. And just uh, summarize that, the De- Decapolis means ten cities. We don't know exactly sure which ten cities, but I've given you nine as a possible guess, um, archaeologist debate. But these were in Transjordan in the northeast. So you have, uh, you have Galilee in the nor- northwest, you have uh, Judea in the southwest, and you have Transjordan in the uh, southeast. So basically, you have all points of the compass here and Jerusalem in the heart of it. So what is he saying? That Yeshua has come as the one to bring about the promise that was made to Abraham. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. It is, he's, already, he's already a uh, foreshadow of under the uttermost parts of the world. He's going in all of these direct People from all of these directions are coming, coming to him. Because they've heard about him. So that's, pretty good. that's a pretty good network in the a- ancient world. How did they all hear about him? It, there was probably more networking than we, than we thought. Yeah, it wasn't the Internet, I guarantee you. You've been listening to the Commentary on the Gospel of Matthew podcast with Torah Resource President and Instructor Tim Haig. If you like this teaching and want to hear more, please visit us at TorahResource.com. Join us again next week as Tim takes us through another verse-by-verse lesson in the Gospel of Matthew.